Identity Talk. I'm your host, Jana Lopez. Thank you for sharing your time with me. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about uncovering meaning about who we are and how we come to see ourselves. Words and identity are my life. I'm the author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. I teach online writing workshops called Write About Now and offer one-on-one transformative coaching sessions that break you through to deeper clarity and connection with yourself through a guided process I call See-Through Words. When it comes to navigating identity funky junk, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope mixed with humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Hello and welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Today I have with me a guest whom I've respected and appreciated for a very long time for a myriad of reasons, uh, Eddie Martinez is local to Portland, but has been anything but local in his life. Certainly (laughs) traveled to many places, seen many people, done many things as a guitarist who's done studio work and touring work and solo work and has had way too many years of time and energy put into the music business. So many iterations of that too. So I'm really excited to talk about the music, of course, and Eddie Martinez is so much more than the music. He's a true artist, and he is somebody who has uh, just been connected to so many interesting people in the music business through so many different ways. And what I love about people like you is that you've lived a rock star life without necessarily having to go and live the rock star angst and pain of constantly being barraged and having your life and freedom taken away because of it. I have another friend who's like that too, plays with a very well-known band and he's the keyboardist. And most of the times everybody's (laughs) glomming on, you know, he can go to a country like Italy when he's touring or whatever and go have a coffee or, and and melt into the scenery. So, uh, and I talked to Jennifer Batten about that too, what that's like to play in front of a billion people (laughs) At a Super Bowl and be able to walk into a, a coffee shop and get coffee. So thank you so much for being here with me, Eddie. It's nice to see thank you. you. Jan. Good seeing you. Thank you for the kind, uh, kind words. Yeah, yeah. And I know you've done a lot of interviews and a lot of people have talked to you about the music. And I know guitar nerds especially revere... <laughs> all of the different styles and guitars and and music that you play and all the people you've been connected to. So, but you're, you're, you know, you've got that true New York grit, which is where you grew up. And so I want to talk a little bit about, let's just start from the beginning of what it was like to grow up in New York, which is a confluence of culture and food and music and people. And that sets the stage right there and culture and being that you're from a bicultural family, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, my father came to this country, I think it had to have been in the early 20s when he was just maybe eight or nine years old. And my mom came to this country in 41 from Puerto Rico, which is a commonwealth. Uh, but um, they ostensibly started there, 
you know, nuclear family here. And my father came, was, in, was orphaned at a very early age. So I think he, he never really spoke about this, but I think innately he felt that he needed to create his own family because his family had been more or less uh, orphaned and, and went through some hard times uh, you know, uh, during the depression when he was in an, in an orphanage you know, for, for uh, several years before he ran away. And uh, his younger siblings stayed there until they turned around 16 or 17. But when he, uh, he ran away, he just really set up fort, went to work. And so when his younger siblings uh, were uh, 16, they could just, you know, uh, uh, exit the orphanage and come in with him. So how old was he when he ran away to, to start his own, be on his own? I think 16. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's such a young age. I I, I don't, and that's something that I I don't, it's really hard to put it into words, but he went through something so dynamically different uh, than we and my brothers and my my late sister um, growing up in a five-story tenement in the South Bronx. I mean, we we always had a roof over our head, even though there's one time that we were more or less homeless and we had to divide the family, so... Some of my siblings live with an aunt and I live with another aunt. And that was for about six months until uh, we can get back on our feet again. That must have been so difficult for your parents. I can't imagine as a parent what that must be like to have to make those life and survival decisions, and especially related to kids and separation. The thing about it is uh, I grew up, I was born in Queens and, uh, and uh, grew up um, in Ozone Park, South Ozone Park and Hollis, which so you know, many years later, that's where the, the rap run DMC emerged because they're from Hollis. But when I grew up, it was considerably before that, uh, late 50s, and um, grew up in an idyllic community, suburbia, suburban house, I guess, middle income, you know, it was really for its time, it was diverse. It was diverse. I mean, there was uh, Latino families on the block, African-American families, people from Australia. It was really a, a potpourri. And it was really very, very interesting. What changed? Um, well, well, something happened relative to my father's house that he had purchased. And uh, long story short, he he had uh, he was he was an entrepreneurial guy. You know, he re- really was. And uh, he finished the basement and figured, let me rent that out. You know, to add some positive uh, cash flow. Long story short, somebody dropped the dime on him because he hadn't done his due diligence of finding what the zoning laws were. So apparently he couldn't do that. So he couldn't, he couldn't rent that out. So uh, that led to uh, things going really down, downward for us because then you have two mortgages rather than one. And uh, long story short, we just really had to leave, you know, but, um, but uh, I mean, the thing that I've learned is that as much as I love and idolize my parents, uh, my parents aren't perfect. Nobody's parents are perfect. And we have to we have to really understand that and glean from that and learn from it as well. Did that take you time maturing and becoming more of your own adult to sort of recognize the frailty and flawed nature of your own parents and maybe be a little more kind and forgiving? Because I know for me and for many of the people I have conversations with, there's a very different view on parents when you're in your 20s than there is in your 30s and when you're 40s. By the time you're in the 50s, you're like, you know what? They were fucked up, but they did their best. I think I'm an exception because they they really afforded me. They gave me freedom. They never, ever pushed back on my dream. And they both uh, 
they both believed in the American dream. Uh, my father was of the mind, and my father was at, at next GI, uh, first wave at Utah Beach at D-Day, uh, a bronze star medal, Purple Heart for Valor. But um, he never he never had a dogma about uh, things political or um, my uh, pursuing a dream. He just said, Eddie, you need to learn the English language to the best of your ability, work real hard, and you could really pursue your dreams. And um, he bought me my first guitar, and then I was on my own. And I'm happy to see, you know, he saw me on, <laughs> he saw me at Live Aid, you're playing in front of 85,000 people to, uh, to, I don't know how many billions of people that were watching that day with Mick Jagger and Tina Turner. He saw me do the share show when I was just 21, 22 years old. And he saw me do the Johnny Carson show with Robert Palmer. So, you know, um, I, 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 I'm glad that he was able to see that him and my mom trusting in me to, you know, do gigs at 16, 17 years old, coming home at two 30 in the morning, uh, uh, that it it paid off. That's huge. And, uh, That's so amazing. It is, it is huge. It is so. My track relative to my um, uh, my parents. I mean, I I, I didn't have the stereotypical uh, locking of horns uh, with my parents that most people do. Um, the structure at home was it was very. It wasn't rigid, but there was a structure, you know. And my father was the boss, and my mom was the boss. And um, so if I was cutting up, if anybody was cutting up, uh, we, you know, we got it, you know, and, uh, and, and the thing about it is that there was never once where I was dealt with that I didn't deserve it. Yeah, and it sounds like there was a lot of mutual respect. So, and it always came with a warning, you know, so it's really funny, you know, if you continue this, there's going to be a consequence, you know, so, I mean, uh, I eventually heeded the warnings and uh, so... Uh, but wonderful relationship with my parents. I mean, it was really, um, there was no polarity, you know, and uh, so it was really interesting. You know, my father, you know, being an ex-GI and and then he, he went to uh, work uh, for the Navy Department uh, just as a file clerk, never making much money. Um, I think my, the most my father ever made per week was $150 and raising, you know, raising seven children and an uncle. So ostensibly there were nine people, 10 people in the house, you know, in the, in the apartment rather. Did you like um, and appreciate having uh, lots of siblings and noise and chaos and activity? Did you ever feel like you wanted to be on your own, like just be private for some people? That's like the blessing of their life is growing up in an environment where everybody's clamoring in the kitchen and there's a lot of noise they always look back with sort of fond memories of how everybody looked out for each other and for other people if they were introverts it was like oh my god I had to go to school to escape the house was full I never felt that I needed uh, you know if I needed to go away I just have to, you know I just dream I just kind of I can focus on something else or play guitar I think all, yeah yeah which is the, the to me an amazing meditation mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, I never felt like I was, I really needed, uh, you know, a room of my own. You know, I had my little corner of a room where I had my posters of Hendrix and Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton and the Beatles and, and all of my favorites. Uh, but, um, but uh, no, I never felt like, you know, n- never to the point that it's just, oh, I just need to get out of here. I never, I, I, I don't seem to recall ever having just a really exit. 
the house just to have some space. Are any of your siblings musicianly and you know musically inclined? Um, my my younger brother Ralph um, is uh, used to play drums in a drummer bugle. He used to play snare drum in a drummer bugle corps, and a good friend of mine gave him a drum set um, uh, years ago, and he played that for a bit too. You know, but uh, he's a businessman now, and you know he founded town and country dealerships here in Portland, and very successful uh, businessman. You know, and so if you look at pictures of us when we were kids, he's holding a car, and I'm holding a guitar. So that is so fantastic. We pursued our dreams and worked really hard, and and um, and uh, luck too. Luck plays a part in it. You know, and I tell people my my desire. There's a there's a word in Spanish. Uh, is is ganas. Ganas means an innate desire to do something. And I felt that my desire um, to not take no for an answer, my pursuit of wanting to um, do certain things in the business uh, exceeded my ability as, as, as a guitarist. I, I was just so determined. To- Why did you start playing? What got you uh, started uh, like, huh, that could be interesting or that's singing to me? Um, I think ever since I was little, really little, I mean, single digits, that I was able to listen to, to hear something and um, and decide, number one, whether I, li- whether I liked it, number two, whether I felt it was musically complex or not. So I, I instinctively knew these things. But I think um, when the Beatles emerged and Hendrix and Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton emerged, there was just this, wow, I, this is what I want to do. I knew really early on, uh, it. Uh, in my life, what I wanted to do. And they're all very different stylistically, but they all have mythical personas, I think. Yeah, oh, exactly. I think uh, when I heard Hendrix, it was like, uh, it was so otherworldly. Um, and I said, wow, what is that? It's, it's, a, it's a, a reimagining of the electric guitar. And, and, and the reason I loved Eric Clapton was what he was really the purveyor of of modern blues and, you know, Brits kind of absorbing what Aubrey King and B.B. King and Robert Johnson were doing historically. And just through their kind of way, how you translate things where you ingest and then you project out, it came with a, with a particular flavor of their own. And um, so was I listening to B.B. King before I heard Eric Clapton? No. But the fact that Eric Clapton spoke about B.B. King and Aubrey King and all the greats maybe go back and go back to the source. And uh, so, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're purveyors of that. And uh, they'd be the, they were the first champions of that. When people ostensibly in the States weren't really, you know, blues was like not really um, seen as a pure art form in itself. Why do you think that is? I think genuinely uh, America has a disposable kind of thing uh, where things, where, where, um, Culture is ephemeral. Um, everything is kind of disposable, and uh, even down to you know, if you, if you go to Paris and see how people, how how the city has preserved their architecture, and uh, you, you, it's the city that you want to walk through. And New York is always the purveyor of, of what's new, and what what is classic and transcends having a date put on Mm -hmm. it uh it's not really accepted it's you know every time i go back to new york it looks taller it looks shinier it has a whole kind of shinier uh retail presence Uh, but now that's a whole different thing i mean that 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 
I don't, I don't know what, what's going to happen. Times Square is one big jumbotron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, you know, it always was that, you know, um, even in the twenties and thirties, that said, there were, there was more of a, a flavor to different areas in New York. I mean, if you look at a Woody Allen flick, he, I think he, he really shows the city in a very kind of, uh, yes, it's a charming way and it's a classic way, but irrespective of the differences in the city at the time, that is, uh, some of that was true in terms of how the city presented itself to people. Uh, as much as I love New York and it is home, uh, it's where I grew up and it's foundationally, you know, uh, even though I'm, I, I live here in Portland, I look back on on uh, New York foundationally for me. You know, there's certain intrinsic things being a New Yorker that I don't think I can. Uh, it's just the way that, you know, uh, I'm about cutting to the chase when, when something's awry. And um, I don't think I'm passive aggressive as is a high art in Portland. <laughs> You know, so, uh, uh, you know, the, the differences, but I, I love Portland and I've made some really incredible friends here. You had said that music uh, absorbed what had happened before it with B.B. King and then down into Eric Clapton. Do you think music is one of those things that is constantly evolving and constantly being absorbed? And where do you see that today? It's kind of hard to feel that or to see that in some of what's coming out, not to be an old man yelling at clouds going, when I was a kid, you know. Oh, I know, I know. And I've always said I was always going to try to really um, embrace the new. And it's, it's become increasingly difficult. First of all, the record business is a shadow of what it used to be. And even what it used to be wasn't perfect. The monetization of music, songwriting, publishing, all those different aspects uh, it's something that's long gone and needs to be, uh, this so needs to be a realignment. Yeah, I was uh, going to ask you about that too with the industry changes because I was thinking, you know, on to dovetail. So when you answer, maybe you can, because you've already started that, like where is it where how music has changed and how the industry's changed and are they, how are they correlated from your perspective? From my perspective, it's really as simple as what, what an artist gets uh, when somebody uh, uh, downloads uh, something or streams uh, some of their music. Now, if we look back to terrestrial radio, uh, you know, the old days of radio stations, to lack of, for lack of a better phrase, if, if a song was played on the radio, gen generally it was about three cents to the songwriter. So if you look at the span of a year and you take a song like Stairway to Heaven or Yesterday, and you look at that as just as a stream of revenue compared to, uh, you know, the millions and hundreds of millions of times something like that may be played annually and what that's going to amount to, rather when a, a, a stream is a fraction of one cent, a fraction, a fraction of one cent. So there, the numbers, you're seeing this, oh, this has been streamed a million times. But when you, when you, when you, when you matriculate that down, this is a... The, the difference in that is astronomical. And let's not even get into publishing. Publishing is a whole other stream. Uh, ostensibly, the three streams uh, when you release a record. You have the artist royalty. You have the publishing royalties for the songs because the record labels have to pay a license to the songwriter or the owner. You can publish a song and not own it. And then the third revenue stream is to the songwriters, and that's for airplay on, on stations. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the... If you look at a, a hit song in terms of if it's trajectory, 
um, when it's when it first comes out and it's a huge hit, it's selling dramatically. So you have these two you have these two lines going up. Okay, then after a song becomes a hit, you see the line for the publishing mechanicals that are played based on sales go down because it's not a hit. But if he come if he comes a if it becomes a classic song, those revenues become consistent right. with with radio and airplay. But now with the advent of, of, of digital streaming, the 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 fact the fact that you're getting a fraction of a cent when something is played or streamed, you do the math. It's a fraction of one cent. So I think that affects the quality of what people are putting out, the creativity level. Like I'm trying what is the well, you know, genuinely, anybody can put a put a record out now. It's so much more cost efficient to make a record, but to have a record heard and sold uh, relative to the platforms that we have today, you have to do. You, you have to really um, number one. You have to be either a megastar like a Cardi B or a Beyonce or Justin Timberlake uh, to be able to get any semblance of a, a, of, of a shift relative to sales in all those different platforms. And to do that, you need to market. And uh, marketing in our day and ages of finding like-minded people. So you have to go mining. And schmoozing with the radio station people. And, you know, there were showcases. There was a whole a whole thing. Yes, it was, it was, it was much more organic. And, you know, nothing lasts forever. So I'm, uh, yeah, I understand that. And I, I, I embrace the innovation. But when I see artists and producers and songwriters really just suffering as they do now with the fact that it's not the 80s and it's not the 90s when you had the Eagles and Michael Jackson and all these artists selling tens of millions of albums, tens of millions of records. Those days are over. Um, and uh, it's so fragmented. Um, the, the, the choice at the top of the funnel, Jana, is so diverse now. If you go back 30, 40 years when we were kids and, and starting out, the top of that funnel was was really much more narrow relative to the There were market. four radio stations after AM radio. There were four radio stations, exactly. the rock station, the pop station, the classic station, and the oldies. Right. And you had record stores where you could buy vinyl or a cassette or a CD. Those those days are gone. So... Um, if you, if you look at what an artist would make selling a CD as opposed to somebody downloading, uh, you know, on iTunes, oh, let me take that song and that song and that song. Oh, forget about the rest of the album. I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's really fragmented in every way conceivable. So is there anybody that's out now that you like that you think has done a good job of really understanding and absorbing a basis of an artist? I mean, I'd like to think Billie Eilish... I've heard her speak, and I know she's had a wide range of musical influences. Her parents exposed her to jazz and blues and country, and you know she got a whole exposure to different styles of music. And I can listen to her, and she had said in her first album that she wanted one song for everybody, you know, like a musical style for everybody. So I'm mean, only using that as an example because that's probably the only current reference I can make. I mean, there's a lot of people that are out. I just do not know. I've heard Billie Eilish. Uh, I, I like her. I don't feel compelled to buy her music. Uh, right. Personally. Um, I, I get it. She's part of the Zikais, the cultural Zikais in terms of what has happened. And right. I always try to listen to it really. 
I, you know, when I'm listening to something, I, I try to listen on two different platforms. I, 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 I try to listen to, okay, I try to not listen to analyze it musically. And I try to um, experience it more as a texture. Uh, I think what we're hearing now is things that are textural to our, to our times relative to youth, because youth chooses what's hip. We don't. Is there anything out now that you like? As far as songwriting, this this is um, oh, there was a song called Trampoline. I forget the artist, but I, I thought that was really a brilliant pop song. And you, all right, we'll have to take a listen. I love Trampoline on on. Uh, on YouTube or something like that, and you'll you'll find it'll pop up. I think Taylor Swift, even though she isn't new, 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 new I think as a pop scribe, I think she's a brilliant pop songwriter. And um, uh, what is that song she had about maybe three, four years ago, Sweetest Dreams or something like that? To me, that was a definition. To me, I think that was the definition of, of a modern pop song. Really, uh, it was brilliantly written, produced, and sang. So, um, I think she's really emerged as a really significant artist. It was interesting watching the Grammys, the categories, who they put into the categories. I'm like, really? You call that rock? <laughs> Are you kidding? It was, so, it was so embarrassing. It is. It really is embarrassing. I, I can barely watch anymore because I think what the Grammys, what what, what they're doing, they're, they're not really, I think they're so focused on what is new. And I think, I think what the what they're missing is they should really present a, a truly holistic approach to music historically, at least for part of the program, to show you know to to me it's so much more musical to be able to um, if you look at music entirely, film scores or um, blues artists, older blues artists, and pairing them up with the young purveyors of the blues. You know, I remember in the 80s seeing Albert King playing with Stevie Ray Vaughan on the Grammys. And I thought that was so cool because Stevie Ray Vaughan idolized Albert King. And it, if it wasn't for Albert, Stevie wouldn't play the way he played. You know, uh, it, it was an incredible influence on him as, as an artist and as a blues guitarist. So you don't see that anymore. You don't see it an homage to things that were happening in the past and how they can sometimes... Co correlate with what is new because there are only 12 tones in western music it's just you know the 12 tones where all this beauty comes from and it's it's That's crazy it, it, yeah yeah it is mind-blowing uh because the creativity and all of the interpretations uh how how it can be shifted and manipulated and applied in different ways to create different sounds um so who would you who would you honor? Like I know you probably have a million people you love and respect, but if you had to pick, let's say five or six top influences for you, who would they be? Oh, you know the obvious. You know the, the people that I you know. I mean, Lennon McCartney as a songwriting team, uh, Gershwin, Rogers and Hart. Uh, really, a, a broad spectrum of, of what American pop music is historically. You mentioned Jimi Hendrix. Oh yeah, Hendrix and Clapton and Beck. You know, those those are the three that I idolized as a kid. And then uh, in terms of composition and song, uh, Lennon McCartney was 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 huge. And then the Stones as well. I mean, the thing about when I was listening to radio as a kid, I mean, there was Tony Bennett, 
there was Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, the Beatles, the Fifth Dimension. It was really a potpourri of what was happening. And it wasn't as secular as it is now. Now there's a category for like, you know, people that were born on, born on the second Tuesday of, of a month. You know, it's, like it's, it's so fragmented. It's so fragmented and it means nothing. Who is the person that you met that you looked up to and revered? Who was the first person that you were so nervous to meet and so excited to meet when you finally got to meet them? Like who, who was the first hero of yours that you got to meet in person or even play with? Wow. That's a great question. I think the first person that I think that I met that was a big rock star was uh, the basis for this band called Mountain. And his name was Felix Papillardi. And uh, he was the bassist in Mountain, but he was also a record producer as well and produced uh, uh, the, the first Cream albums, you know. And, um, and so when I met him, I just started asking him questions about his productions rather than about Mountain. And uh, so we got along really well, you know, it was so great. How old were you? Uh, I think I was 17. Were you nervous? No, I wasn't nervous. At, I, I wasn't nervous. Um, I was cautious a, a bit, you know, be, yeah. uh, you know, um, but he was so totally cool. And uh, I, I, I met him a couple of times and each time was great. And we had a great, uh, we had a great conversation, you know, not to get into the weeds about cream, but there was a song that I was talk, talking to him about, which was called badge. And it's a great, it's a great, one of my favorite cream tunes. And, um, and he said to me, well, you know, that really wasn't cream. And do you know why it wasn't really cream? I says, oh, well, I figure because George Harrison was playing rhythm guitar on that. And he said, that's right. So it was, it was an anomaly relative to who was playing on, on the track. So that was cool. And uh, so he was one of the first rock stars that I met. I'm trying to think. I remember meeting Steve Married, who was a great um, a rock blues singer uh, from Humble Pie. I met him uh, really early on. And the thing that blew my mind about him he was in the faces before Rod Stewart sang in the faces um, and uh, went on to great success with Humble Pie. And when I met him, he emptied out this, he had, you know, back in those days, you had these man pouches that was really prevalent in the 70s, you know. So he just emptied out his man pouch and he had all these cassettes and they were all of like Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin. And, and, and it's what he that was his that was his source of inspiration. You know, and, uh, and and we go back to the aspect of the blues musicians and the British blues musicians and singers listening to to uh, the blues and rhythm and blues and embracing it and interpreting it in their own way. And that, yeah, that's fascinating. I remember one time um, meeting. Uh, it was it's so funny. I've never really lost it. I've never really lost it working with people, you know, and I've worked with everybody, you know, uh, Yoko Ono to Rod Stewart and Robert Palmer. And I remember one time we were doing um, uh, the Arsenio Hall show and, uh, and we did our performance. We went into the green room and Dave Winfield was sitting up at the, there was a bar area where they served, served drinks and soft drinks and uh, primarily. And, um, and, um, and I saw Dave Winfield, and I'm a crazy Yankee fan. And uh, he was uh, he was on the injured list because he was recovering from some back surgery. And uh, I walked into the, and we had just gotten off stage from doing Simply Irresistible. We were like all amped up because TV is a real, it's a different kind of electricity. So we're just off stage and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm shimmering, you know, it's like, 
And I saw Dave Winfield says, oh shit, Dave Winfield. And then I got like, oh. <laughs> but I, I, I never. Give me the nod, you know, the, the dude to dude nod, you know yeah, how they yeah, do yeah. that, like what's up? And then I said, nice to meet you. And then I collected myself. But um, I mean, I, I you know, I, uh, I've been so fortunate to have worked with, uh, you know, with the artists that I have worked with. And I remember, you know, when I think about it, uh, Jeff Beck, Hendrix, Eric Clapton, I've, I've recorded with two of those guys. And That's pretty amazing. That is pretty amazing. It is, it is amazing. And these are heroes of mine, you know? So uh, I recorded with, uh, with Jeff in the Bahamas on Mick Jagger's first al- a solo album, She's the Boss. And also cut a track with Eric Clapton when he was recording uh, Journeyman. And, you know, when you make records, you rec- you kind of over record. You record like 20 songs, you whittle it down to your, the 10. So I cut a track. I wish it would have made the record because I thought it was really cool. But it's it's floating somewhere on uh, YouTube as an as a, um, as a, um, an outtake or something like that. But it was it was it was great recording with with Eric and with Nathan East and Steve Ferroni and Greg Fillingaines, who are just legendary musicians. It was just, it was, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. So, you know, when I'm playing and fiddling around in between takes and I'm saying, we cut this song in two takes. So and, and that was, oh man, you have anything else to record? <laughs> <laughs> you Intentional mistakes. Uh, wait, I didn't get that. Let me... Let me do that again. You no, know, and Eric, you know, and Eric was was so gracious enough, you know, uh, you know, say, hey, where'd you get that lick from? I said, from listening to you, you know, and that's the truth. And you know, it's it it, it was really so much fun. And then speaking uh, when I was working with Rod Stewart, I was rehearsing with him to go out on tour, you know. So I started bringing up these these obscure uh, older songs that he had cut with the faces and stuff. He's looking at me like, I've got two heads, you know, this is like 1988. <laughs> and I'm, I'm talking to, Hey man, you, you, you know, what about sailing? Are you, you know, you want to do that? Or, uh, you know, uh, you know, he's just saying, look at me. How do you know that song? He's just you kidding, man. I'm, you know, I've got all, I've got all your records, you know, from gasoline alley to, you know, uh, the Rod Stewart album and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, I was, I was really so lucky to have worked with people that I really knew their, their uh, their catalog, um, their sensibility, their style, and I think the yeah. best artists are the biggest fans. I mean, I think that's true for a lot of artists. The best artists I know, and whatever they create, whether it's music or painting or drawing or whatever it is they're doing, the, they're always the biggest fans, and that that would make sense. Yeah, and and the beauty of it is. The greatest experiences that I've had have been experiences with with artists or that are um, they're so open to what your authenticity is and what I'm hearing. Because, you know, you can put us put the music in front of you and you play what somebody else wrote and stuff like that. And, you know, that could do that, you know. But if they come with you with a sheet of music that just has the basic structure of it. And we want to hear what you hear. And to me, that's really makes the distinction of, of being successful at what you do, because you need to hear stuff. You need to hear, you need to hear music and you need to con- contribute um, what you're hearing to the music. What is that thing that, you know, you have in your soul or in your heart or your brain or whatever it filters through these 
personhood, right? The music is filtering through you as a person and then you're giving it back. Yeah. Uh, what is that? Pro- what would you describe that as? I describe it as serving the song, not serving yourself. So it's really a selfless thing to a degree. Uh, you want to play what is best for the song, not best for you for showing how much you can play or how fancy you can play. Because more times than not, it's what you don't play that makes uh, things work. So you have to be sensitive to who you're collaborating with. And if you're not a good communicator relative to gleaning what somebody may be trying to impart with you, whether it's something overtly musical or whether it's something metaphorical in terms of they're trying, sometimes they're not saying, well, uh, can you make that a half diminished chord or something like that? Um, they'll be saying, oh man, could you make it sound happier? Can you make it sound a bit more angry? You know, you get into the, that kind of language and um, and being able to understand and really absorb that is a real huge part of uh, success and collaboration. What has music given you as a person and in your experience in this life? Uh, I think really early on, I became um, a traveler and uh, someone who really experienced so many different cultures and uh, absorbed that. I loved the traveling aspect of my musical career so much. It was really, it was, it was great to go to Italy and play in front of people and spend a lot of time recording or all, you know, all throughout Europe um, and all throughout America, playing the sheds and heat waves in the summer of 88. I remember we did 52 shows, 56 shows in 56 days it was. And each day was a different location, all in a heat. With room. who? With, uh, with Robert Palmer. Robert, okay. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, oh my God, that was such an incredible experience. And, you know, when you do 56 shows and you're, you're on stage each night for two hours and 45 minutes, sometimes three hours, um, nonstop, no breaks, um, it's, it's exhausting, you know, but, uh, you know, when you're in your prime and you're just each, each night you go, you may not feel like you have the, the energy to go up, but once those lights go up or they go down and the spotlights hit, there's an adrenaline adrenaline that comes out in you that is like it just it's what you do it's like I, I always I never I never took that for granted John I always would pinch myself before going on stage it's, this is what I wanted to do all my life and you can feel the crowd even though you can't see them like with the lights on you and everything I've talked to a lot of musicians and they say you don't even need to see it to know it or to feel it that it's there Oh yeah, the energy is there, and you see them. You see the, you know, first few rows a bit, you know, and uh, it's so much fun. It's really um, that's my drug, is is playing for people, and uh, also the collaborative aspect of recording because I was so fortunate I was able to balance. I was very selective of who I toured with because I was my bread was buttered in, in recording studios and playing on records and. And uh, I'd love that as well, because it was such a hard, um, it, was a, it was hard to crack. It's very cliquish, um, uh, these, 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 these concentric spheres of creativity relative to New York, LA, London, Tokyo, um, 
and and uh, I was I toured with quite a few people. And after I toured with Blondie, I made a decision that um, I really wanted to. When was that? That was around uh, early '80s. You know, '82. I wanted to. I really wanted to focus on recording, and I was able to. And uh, by a, a mentor, uh, Bernard Edwards, who really gave ostensibly gave my really my first start. Uh, you know, in the studio scene, and he was the co-founder of Chic and produced uh, Duran Duran and Robert Palmer and all these. You know, the hits are boundless. And I played on a lot of those records with him and, and uh, he produced my first solo album. So he's really instrumental in me finding my voice as a as an artist. But, you know, you asked a question earlier, maybe pr- before we were on air relative to about life in general uh, outside of outside of uh, the rock star thing relative to uh, just being a, a citizen so to speak. Was that hard to get used to? Like you go on tour with Robert Palmer, you're, you know, you have all the perks and the chocolate on the bed and the turndown service. (laughs) And then, you know, you're sort of used to having this lifestyle and then you come home and you're, you know, looking to see where the housekeeping help is. And not that you would take any of that for granted, but I think it's hard to shift gears when you're used to having a life that's one way and then going to another life that's another way it doesn't matter either way you you could flip-flop it if I were somebody who had never toured and then had to tour I would have to get used to that I I never took things for granted because I I, uh, you you have to develop thick skin in this business so if somebody's saying oh you're gonna be playing Madison Square Garden next week I I would okay cool when when I'm there and I'm I'm on stage and everything is rocking then I says, oh, okay, I'm that one on, on the stage at Madison Square Garden. And the same thing like when I was with Blondie, we had a Learjet. I had a limo pick me up in front of my apartment in New York, drive me out to Teterboro. We'd get on a Lockheed Four Star, boom, scoot out to Toronto, playing for, at a stadium, get back on the plane. I'm back home in bed by, by, by midnight. I never took that for granted because I knew after the tour I was back on the D train. <laughs> you know, I was back on the subway. <laughs> So I, I I never got jaded by those those things, and the same thing with with uh, touring with with Robert. Um, yeah, you know we 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 travel mostly by you know uh, you know custom rock coach kind of thing, buses and everything, and some some flight as well. And uh, you know, yeah, your bags are brought to your room. You didn't have to carry anything. I didn't have to carry my guitars. My equipment were tended to by my roadie. They were all strings were changed every day and polished and everything. But um, I knew that was not real. I knew that wasn't anything that was going to be lasting forever. Um, uh, the only thing I missed was, is when I got home, it was like every night around eight o'clock or nine o'clock. That's when I knew it would be going on stage. And I felt some sort of sense, of, okay, I'm ready to go on stage now, but I wasn't. And that was the right. only thing. All the other stuff I really took, I uh, took it as it came. Well, it's hard to find your place in the world when the world is changing, I think. with um, and, and music is an interesting business because it's its own world. And within the world, there's lots of little worlds. And you're having to navigate systems and biases and politics and money. And, you know, there's so much. It's a machine unto itself. And it's like you said, it is fleeting. And I don't want to say fickle, but in some ways it is, fickle. it is fickle and it is fleeting in under normal circumstances, Jenna. 
Right. Fleeting and yeah, that's a tongue twister. Fleeting and fickle <laughs> under normal circumstances. So you throw this pandemic right. in and it's just myriad problems. And there's so many. It's an ecosystem. It's an ecosystem relative to touring. Um, if, if you look at one major act or not even a major act, maybe an act that had great hits in the 80s and they do, do their, their annual tour. And when you think about they're going out on tour and there may be five people on stage, but you, you don't realize that there are arguably anywhere between 50 and 60 people that uh, conservatively that are part of this entourage relative to um, sta- stage. The, the lighting the, sound the lights the sound the production yeah. the management the, the the technicians the truck drivers the caterers this is this is this affects so many so many things and um and then you have you have this whole gradation of like the mega stars that are pulling over a million dollars a night to the other groups that are that are putting pulling in like maybe you know 40 50 maybe a hundred thousand dollars a show and you, you know, you and you look at that dynamic relative to all the people that it's serving, and right. therein lies a huge problem. Yeah, it is definitely. Uh, I mean, it's it's been interesting to watch because it's become like the conglomerate. Yeah. Mass. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know enough about it, but I but I just see how it became all about monetization and the only way musicians could make money was by their merchandising and by touring. Well, yeah, it, it became, it, what became the commodity, it used, it's, it, it's reverse what it was 30 years ago, 30 years ago, you made your money on the records and you toured to support the records to, to, to enhance sales. Now, uh, groups like Aerosmith, they haven't released an album in several years, but they could always tour and always pack a house and make money, and uh, irrespective of uh, irrespective of the elite or the working class bands, that's all gone. It's all changed. Let's talk a little bit about because Eddie Van Halen passed away last week, and that's also another change I feel in the music industry. Is it was the last couple of years was rough. There were so many people who passed away. Uh, that were part of the foundation of my generation's era of music. And, you know, David Bowie and George Michael and Prince and Rick Ocasek and Tom Petty. And it just seemed like there were so many. And then this last one with Eddie Van Halen just gutted me because, I mean, I knew he had cancer and everything, but still he seemed so much larger than life. So I know you've known a lot of these people and because we connect on Facebook, I know you post a lot, people that are known and unknown that have passed away that you've worked with in the music yeah. business. How, how does that affect you in your own personhood to see people that you've worked with dying and, and relatively young in some way? How does that affect you? It affects me many ways. And uh, the loss of Eddie Van Halen is huge. I was just, uh, uh, just uh, submitted a quote uh, a guitar player magazine asked me to submit a quote uh, about uh, Van Halen. I, and uh, to summarize my quote is, I remember seeing Van Halen in the late seventies opening up. They weren't even headliners. They were opening up for Montrose and for Journey. And the significance, the significance of seeing Eddie Van Halen 
40 some odd years ago uh, is really what I'm trying to articulate how he was the emergence of the modern guitar hero. He was the last guitar hero really, you know, to really capture the kids. And it captured a certain type of zeitgeist of, um, there were certain bands in that area that era that were really flashy, but their substance and their prodigiousness as musicians wasn't a co-equal, you know. And when I think about Van Halen, you have with David Lee Roth, who I was, you know, I recorded with David on his, uh, right. you know, uh, uh, album uh, "Crazy from the Heat," and then seeing the virtuosity of Eddie Van Halen, and it was just this incredible alchemy. And it was, it was really, it, it changed, it was the game changer relative to rock guitar. And I called it full frontal rock guitar. And it's like you're, there's a swag and you're a badass and you're doing shit that nobody's done in that fashion before. And if you look at all those different aspects, you know, you, look, you can look at it as from a, from a marketing aspect, right. you know, and one of the immutable laws of marketing, it's better to be first than to be better. So you have somebody who's doing something first and he's so incredible. Right. And it was just this explosion. And, uh, and I really recognized him for, for, and I love this playing. I love this playing. I didn't try to emulate him. Um, but I so respected him because I didn't want to emulate him. It was, it was that kind of, um, how much I revered his playing. Just like, you know, Jeff Beck and, you know, and my, my favorites and Hendrix and stuff like that. You, you try to absorb things um, from these great guitars because it, even if you try to emulate them, it's always going to sound like you emulating somebody else. So what I learned from that is, is like, these great guitars make me be a better right. version of myself. I mean, it just seems like with them... When with all of the the people who have passed away, it to me it, there there's a little bit of sadness in that because it feels like a part of my childhood or my past has gone with them. As much as I try, I always try to look forward, but it seems just during this pandemic, I've been looking back a bit more than I would want to, and for obvious reasons. I think that we're 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 social beings, and we're being asked not to be social beings, and we have to learn a new discipline. Uh, with that, and um, and that can be met with much consternation and pushback and anger, and I think we're seeing it in many many different ways. And um, uh, I, I believe that we just have to be uh, diligent in getting around this thing and learning it and combating it and defeating it, uh, because we are social beings. I'm, I fervently believe that we're going to get back to playing in front of twenty thousand people. That's going to happen. I don't know when exactly, but I I believe that we will. It's weird because even watching some of the sports, I don't watch sports at all, but I thought it was just so strange to see cardboard cutouts. Like your seat is relegated to becoming a cardboard cutout. I don't know why that bothers me so much, <laughs> but it just does. It would be like going to a concert and playing the cardboard cutouts and having the screams piped in. It's just bullshit. It is bullshit. You know, it's not good for the artists or the players. It's, they know that they're playing the cardboard cutouts. <laughs> it's total, total bilge. I've seen these yes. concerts and playing in front of empty houses and you're playing. It's not the same. There's a reciprocal no. energy that happens when you're playing in front of an audience and they, they give you 
you know, it's so interesting. You go to different markets, you get different different energy spectrums from how people reciprocate. I love I love the markets where they're so hungry to see you, you know, and it makes you give more. You know, this- give me an example of a market that would be like just dying to see Robert Palmer or David Lee Roth or Blondie or Mick uh, Jagger or somebody that would be just like they would not stop screaming and would never never sit down. Uh, D.C. was always a great city to play. Washington D.C. was killer. Philadelphia killer. Um, Chicago killer. New York. Some and I'm a New Yorker. And sometimes New Yorkers are just too cool for school. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they they aren't as animated, maybe. You know, maybe it's this little tinge of elitism stuff. And I can say that because I'm from there. <laughs> but uh, I think this- And that certain, surprises me, too. It, it is, you know, and it's probable because I've played, I've played New York with many different artists through the years. And it's, it's a lot of show me. You know, whether it's, oh, man, I'm just so happy to be here. I want to hear I want to hear these songs. And, uh, you know, not to disparage New York City, but, you know, sometimes it, it that has happened. What about like small towns, smaller markets? Uh, small, yes, over the top, over, over the top, the smaller markets, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, um, Albuquerque or Portales, New Mexico, you know, uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, you know, uh, they're just over the top crazy. They just want to, they're just so happy that you're there and they know the songs. I remember doing a show in Guam uh, back in the 80s with Robert Palmer and we played in this building that was ostensibly made out of metal. And uh, we hit that stage and, and it was as if the Beatles were going on stage. I mean, the cacophony it was so loud, even before you played a note, um, it was, it was, and that kind of energy is amazing. It's like when I played at Live Aid with Jagger and Tina Turner, and you're playing in front of these 85,000 people, I think it was, it was amazing. And I, and the interesting thing is, I remember the night before we rehearsed in the venue that was empty, except for the technical crew and the stage crew, right? So, you know, just around dusk. And we hit, and I'm saying to myself, oh my God, this is going to be so incredible because the energy, the energy we were putting out was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And then that night, the following night, we went on around 1030 and the roar, the, the roar and the energy from the audience was almost equal to what we were putting out musically. So you had this energy coming from the stage and this energy coming from the audience that just met right in the middle. It was just the fastest 20 minutes of my life. I, I, it's so hard to quantify in words and explain, uh, but the energy was really incredible. I'm so privileged to have been there. And do people like Mick Jagger and Tina Turner who have played hundreds of thousands of shows in front of hundreds of thousands of people, do they feel the newness when they go on stage still even after all these years or is it hard to muster up because I remember when I'd seen Paul McCartney when he was in Portland I've seen him both times he was here and I was blown away that it felt like the first time he had ever played I mean I felt that maybe he's just a really good showman but it felt like I was sitting in a living room with him and he was just as excited as he had been for 50 years I don't I don't know do you have any idea of that I saw McCartney in Madison Square Garden 
long time ago in the 80s and I saw him in Portland uh, as well. And um, what I do know is that McCartney really rehearses a lot. So when you rehearse a lot, um, there are two schools of thought on that. If you're doing a show, you want, you want to rehearse the show to the point that you don't have to think about it. Right. And what, you, what you're thinking more about is performance rather than remembering. Because mm -hmm. there's, this little, there's this curve when you're learning a show and um, you may feel you've learned it, but as you're performing it, you're still remembering it. But then there comes this point where you have so absorbed the music that you can really perform it without really thinking too much about the music. And I think that what you're seeing there with McCartney is that he's genuinely emoting because everything else is automatic. So you, he's putting, he's being really present in his, in his performance because he's done all the work before. I mean, that's, that's a good way. That's, that's very insightful. I mean, that would make sense. I've, that's what I would have felt. Yes. And it, it takes work. Um, I, I know for a fact that Prince was that way. He rehearsed a lot. Um, and uh, it takes a lot of work to have that feeling of spontaneity. Let's put it that way. And that's like with anything you do, with anything you, you know, with anything you do, if you put in the work, it, it, it then you can enjoy it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so with your album, was that the same? I know uh, I'm going to try to do my best to pronounce it, but Akosia? Yeah, Akosia. Sarah's uh, So that came out in 2018, and that was your solo record. Yeah. And I know you spent a long time practicing and rehearsing and writing and, and building up to, for that. How was that to do your own thing that's truly artistic and expressive? What's that about for you? Well, it was purely a labor of love. And mm -hmm. uh, songs that I kind of amassed over the, the years that I, I, that I hadn't put a record out. And so I, I called up some of my best buds to play on it and guys that I love. And um, it was a, a wonderful experience. Um, I took my time making it. I went through a real spurt of recording. I got really what I initially, uh, maybe seven or eight songs down. Uh, the first week of recording. And then I started doing overdubs. Then I recorded a few more songs in Los Angeles and then built on those. And in between the first leg of my rock record, my mom passed away. And, um, and I, I uh, took about six months off from really going back in the studio. I just didn't feel uh, uh, the energy because uh, uh, it was a, an enormous loss. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a song for her at which I recorded and um, it's called Smile and Fly For Me. And um, so uh, that emerged from it. And uh, that was, it was really an interesting journey making that record. Um, what I did in my preparation for the record, I, I kind of like had around maybe 70% decided what I wanted to do musically. And I left another 30% open for experimentation in the studio. And I, I think it worked out well because I was, um, uh, there were some songs that I didn't know where they were going to wind up and where they were going to go. And the title track is one, uh, which is. And that mean the title track is a uh, baby girl born on a Sunday. Yeah. Is that what that yes. Means? That's Sarah's middle name in the Ghanaian yes. culture. Uh, one of the names that they given is the day of the week that they're born and their gender, you know? So, um, 
uh, I just called it a cosia, you know. And Sarah is Eddie's wife. <laughs> For those that don't know, she's <laughs> lovely. Uh, and were well I know she's been she came to all your shows to support you and I remember when you did your record release party and uh, oh she's been so supportive uh, you know if it wasn't for her she really kicked me in my butt and says get out and play put a band together and play and then playing you know I would play regularly here in town and then that led for me to go back in the studio um, to record but uh, it was so good that you have a partner that's really kind of like, this is what you were born to do. This is what you do. Go ahead and do it. And uh, Yeah, it is amazing. And I think anytime as artists, when we struggle with our own creative expression, we have fits and starts or doubts or... Oh my God. There's probably the fine line between the commercial success versus the critical success versus the self-allowance and uh, that type of success. When you put something out, you're super proud of it and you're just glad that you did it and you feel complete in that. That should be enough, but there's always other things. Yeah. I, I, you know, I did this with, I didn't, I don't care if anybody bought it. I just needed to put it out. And that's my mission right now, um, you know, just to put out content. And if they like it, they like it. You know, uh, I, I didn't really uh, professionally seek out to market it or to sell it. I just put it out to friends, uh, you know, and if they want to find it, it's on iTunes or Amazon. And, you know, it's it's out there, you know, and um, and that was my my initial intent. And I'm, I'm, uh, prior to COVID, I was uh, I had found some tracks that I recorded years ago. Um, and I was just about to compile an EP, which is like a, a compilation of like maybe four or five songs. And I was about to compile that up and then COVID hit. So uh, I hope to go back in the studio and kind of compile these songs that I wrote many years ago as a snapshot of 25 years ago. And it, it's, it still rocks. It doesn't sound dated, which I'm, I'm so happy about because I have things That's that really I That's really cool. I have things that go back further that sounded, sounded just, it sounded a bit too a bit too eighties, you know, and, um, what's old is new. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What's past is prologue. Maybe people will like it, <laughs> you know? but I mean, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing how much stuff comes, comes back around. And I, and I teach cause I teach people in writing, um, that the whole idea of expression is just to have a conversation with yourself. It may be a snapshot in time, but really, if you're just making room and allowing it and whatever comes out is not necessarily your job or your responsibility to determine how or when it's received. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. with music, I can I can only imagine when you're putting putting something out that you're, you know, your fingers crossed. But and, you know, when I listened to your your record, it, it reminded me, I'm sure you've had this comparison a lot but of the two Joes. Because there's some sounds in there that have similar sounds to those two guitar players. Have you gotten that comparison? To Joe, to two Joes, like who? Satriani and uh, and Bonamassa. Bonamassa, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I met um, Satriani once at, at a show uh, that he gave here. Uh, we have a mutual friend, and I was able to go back and say hello. That's a great compliment. Um, Bonamassa. No, I mean, I got both of those because there was the fusion. The sounds were there was a little blues, but a little progression. I felt like there was two different. I could hear the 
Yeah. I don't know. I don't know enough about guitar, but that's what it reminded me of. I love, I love both of their playing. Um, and uh, Joe's a buddy of mine. Actually, he's been really very kind to me. He, I sat, I've sat in, on, uh, you know, sat in with him a couple of times uh, when he's come through Portland uh, because we have a mutual friend that played bass for him, Carmine Rojas, who's a dear buddy of mine. And um, so I, I sat in with Joe. It was a total, total blast. He's, uh, he's really, you know, he's really the modern purveyor of, of, of blues. And, he's, and I saw him, the first time I saw him live, it was really, it was so awesome because it reminded me of being a kid at the Fillmore East, seeing the great blues bands of the day, uh, of the British cool. blues band. And it really harkened back to that. And, and, I, and I loved it because it reminded me of a proper blues rock concert. You know, it's just balls to the walls. It's energy. You're playing. It's big. It's got this majestic rock kind of thing, but it's blues driven. And That's what I heard in your music. It felt very rooted. I guess, for lack of a better term, it felt very rooted and organic and similar to what the essence of that sound should be about. Yeah, you know, when I think, um, I, I try to write songs and then try to fit my guitar into the song. And I think the album has that kind of diversity to it uh, relative to textures and feels. And I, I, I like that because um, I'm a song guy. Um, you know, people know me for my playing, but I try to I try to write the best songs that I can. And it's really a catharsis. Making this whole record was just cathartic for me because you really, you get the music down and then you're down to lyrics. And what do you want to talk about? What do you really want to project about yourself? And, you know, the, the, the things that I really wanted um, to, to project uh, was uh, the aspect of being present. Mm-hmm. The aspect of of um, of not judging, mm-hmm. you know. I think that my song "Majestic" is is really primarily about that. It's about judgment, um, and the song "Smile" uh, is a is a song about my mother, and um, mm-hmm. and um, uh, which an interesting story when I when I went to sing when I finally wrote the lyrics and I'm putting the vocal down, and you know I grieved heavily when my mother passed. And when it came time to do the vocal, I, ha- I hadn't really given, I knew that I'd written the lyrics and the lyrics were cathartic in, in writing. Once I got up to the microphone to sing, um, the words wouldn't come out. And, um, and I just told the engineer to stop recording because I, I was just, I couldn't. And I was sobbing. And I really came to the conclusion that maybe I hadn't grieved entirely after that incident, <laughs> you know, in the studio, I was, I felt that I really had grieved entirely, that I really put a cap on, on it. And uh, that was one, uh, I'll never forget that. That's never happened to me before. And uh, that I just had to, um, no, I can't do this right now because the words wouldn't come out. Um, I I think that's honest. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, that is being present for yourself. So what you set out to do in your own recording, you were able to give back to yourself by being present when you needed it most. Yes. You know, and, and, you know, the 
the one thing I remember my mom would tell me the most was that um, first be yourself and no matter who you're with and whatever endeavor, um, be true to yourself. Uh, and also to be thankful for not only the good, but also the bad, because there are things to be learned in your, it, it, there are things to be learned in adversity in your life that will make you a better human. And uh, those are the, those are the things that she's, you know, she imparted with all of us. Do you feel that's with you right now, still today in this moment? Oh, absolutely. 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 And that's where I try to project myself. We've covered a lot of really interesting ground. And I, I don't know, I think that's kind of a good place. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's kind of like the perfect place because that, that really says, I think, a little bit about who you are, who you are in the world. And um, those are those are things that we, we hope to aspire to carry carry forward. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, that's, you know, it's a discipline, too. It's sometimes, sometimes things return to the mean that you don't want to go. You don't want to return to the mean. You want to try to evolve and move forward, you know, but it's a, it's a constant process. That, that it is. And I think the path of trying to figure out who we are is never neat and tidy. I, fe I feel that it's one that will always shift and change and for you the conduit is the music that's the thread that's the keeper of the sacred and of the mundane you know that's the part of you that will stay with you that you can give back to others because of it that's what i, I that's kind of like what my mission is now jana i just really want to put put content music out for people if they want so choose want to check it out it's there and we need it right now <laughs> oh we do we do I'm so dying. You know, it's really funny how we take things for granted. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I did two shows last year, which were such a blast to do. And it's a, it's a lot of work for me because I, I, I fly some musicians from out of state and need to put them up in a hotel and rehearse and try to cram an intense rehearsal and then do a show. It's kind of like this intensity, it's this chaos. And then you, the only time that there's really any kind of sanity is when you're actually on it stage does. playing, if that makes any sense. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, so uh, all this year I'm saying, oh man, why didn't I do more shows last year? Why didn't I, uh, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fall back into, oh, I'll do a show next month or let's, let me book something out three months from now i really want to get something going on that i could play in portland and maybe select markets in the in the country you know something in chicago new york los angeles outdoors that's really what i do right i mean isn't that what people are booking right now yes yeah i, I you know i'd play in a straw shack that's highly <laughs> highly perforated you know hey you can come <laughs> play in our basement we'll we'll do that we'll start there i mean you know <laughs> I know it's not oh. Madison Square Garden, but <laughs> you'll have an audience of at least six. Oh. I can invite oh. a couple of people. We can socially distance safely. I should set up in the driveway. Totally. It's been a thought. It's been a thought. Well, thank you so much, Eddie. I appreciate thank it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. thank you for thinking of me for this. It's been fun. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I've had a fantastic time. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. For questions or comments, reach me at janalopez.com. 
And when you're having a moment of identity doubt, just remember that seeing is relieving. <laughs>